Scott Fitzgerald once wrote, the rich are different than you and me. They sure are. They got more money. But there wasn't enough money in the world to save some of the members of Chicago's upper crust from a fiendish force so dark it can only be called diabolic. Chicago's rich and super rich are no different from the privileged few of New York's Sutton Place or the nouveau riche of Los Angeles. They enjoy a highly protected environment. November 12th, 11.20 p.m. Rhonda June Marquet, real name Adele Saperstein, was coming home after an unusually successful day. Miss Marquet was chairman of the board of Maison de Marquet Incorporated, manufacturers of the famous Rhonda June Brazier line, a longtime bulwark of the garment industry serving women from 8 to 80. She designed her first bra in 44 when she was an aircraft worker in Glendale. Miss Marquet had a well-known proclivity for fine gems and was reputed to have some of the biggest diamonds in Chicago. November 13th, 1.30 a.m., Lucy LaPont Addison, the reigning queen of what was left of Chicago's old society, was returning home after an opera opening. She supplied the opera house. Lucy Addison had accumulated fortunes like she accumulated husbands. Friends referred to her as the steel butterfly. The sudden demise of these two powerful ladies jolted Chicago's elite. Both funerals were SRO. That was the voice of reporter Carl Kolchak from a case that we know as Bad Medicine. That was the eighth episode of Kolchak the Night Stalker, directed by Alex Grassoff and written by L. Ford Neal and John Huff. Original air date, November 29th, 1974. I guess this was the Thanksgiving or just post-Thanksgiving episode of the show. I am Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Mike Wallace. Good afternoon. Or evening, depending on your point of view. And also with us is my regular co-host. Well, I don't know how regular he is, but after all that pork you've been eating, son, you might not be too regular for a little while. Mr. Chris Dashew. Hanging to the left as well. So, you know, address to the left, as they would say, uh, in the days of yore. And we are definitely in the days of yore. My goodness, the outfits in this episode are fantastic. And Richard Keel is still alive. No, he's not. No, in this episode he is. Yes. He is not anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking, uh, you were talking, I thought we were talking about in the context of this episode, Richard Keel is still alive. In that case, everyone is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Everyone is still, yes. Uh, everyone in Gone with the Wind is still alive in Gone with the Wind, including Victor Jory, who's in this episode. And uh, the secretary from Greece. Alice Ghostly. No, no, no. She's not the secretary, and she's the uh, she's the shop she's the shop person, the shop teacher. Mm, that's right. I tend not to watch movies that are totally misogynistic towards one of the main characters. I don't even associate her with that movie. I just think of her as Aunt Esmeralda from Bewitched. I guess I'm dating myself. I think we're all dating ourselves here. I just made a I'm a millennial and I don't watch movies because they're a misogynistic joke. And we are discussing Kolchak the Night Stalker, so I'm, we're pretty dated. Not a whole lot of 20-somethings listening to this episode, let's put it that way. I actually just watched a documentary, quote-unquote documentary, by Alex Grassoff the other day uh, for an, an episode of another podcast that I'm on called Future Shock. And then as I'm watching this episode, I'm like, Alex Grassoff, why do I know that name? And there it was. It was one of those, we're going to take a whole bunch of clips of a lot of stuff, some talking heads, and then we're going to somehow wrangle Orson Welles and get him to do the voiceover and intro for this thing. It's uh, it's no The Man Who Saw Tomorrow, but it's still pretty good. I mean, didn't they essentially, towards the end of Orson Welles' life, just 
pay him in like hot dogs. Hot dogs and wine. Oh wait, are we talking about Orson Welles or Marlon Brando? Alex Grasshoff will come back in two episodes for The Energy Eater, and then one of the writers, John Huff, who I'm trying to line up a uh, interview with, he and his partner, L. Ford Neal, actually wrote a few other episodes, including the infamous, and we'll talk about it in a few months, the infamous Mr. Ring episode, and I swear they did one. Oh, yeah, they also did The Sentry, which was the last aired episode of Kolchak the Night Stalker. Everybody always talks about this Mr. Ring episode. I guess it must be some grand experiment in Kolchak, the Night Stalker TV storytelling. It's because, like, I see it all the time mentioned. As in, that was my favorite episode, or that episode freaked me out when I was a kid. Pretty much. Kind of reminded me of, and we'll talk about this when we get there, but it kind of reminded me of a character from The Six Million Dollar Man. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> but what about Richard Keel in this episode as the Diablero? Because they don't know how to say Diablero because none of them can speak Spanish. Usted habla muy bien. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear God. Yeah. Every time they said the Richard Keel's character name, I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it's supposed to be like Sororan Indian, Native American, right? Yeah, but it's a Spanish word, right? Well, I, yeah, no, of course it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Throwing in my two cents there. No, you're, I mean, you're not wrong. Um, this is a really weird episode. Hell yes. Absolutely, and God bless it. It's well, Yeah, this is one of my favorites, actually. And I think, for me, this goes back to this kind of the central tenant of Kolchak, the Night Stalker's inherent show storytelling and kind of mythology, as it were. Why is a Native American spirit in Chicago? Well, there's a lot of rich old people in Chicago, apparently. All the, uh, the the jewelry trade in the United States must be centered there. Or maybe he's already made his way around to uh, all the other major metropolitan cities. And Chicago was just next on the list. The whole conceit of the character is that he goes around searching for gemstones. He's trying to pay back. What, what, what was that? He's trying to pay back a debt so he can be released from his earthly bonds. Yes, that's it exactly. <laughs> it took me a few times watching this before I even got that. I just knew that the guy liked jewels. I thought that it had something to do with him turning into a kind of a crow or a raven. And I know that they like pretty shiny things. At least that's how it was in The Secret of Nim. So I'm like, oh, okay. He, that's his thing. He likes shiny things. So he's just going to be taking them. And there's one uh, character who. Kolchak goes to see one of his many underworld contacts, Albert Delgado, who apparently used to be – was he a fence or did he steal diamonds? But he was a diamond cutter, and he's played by Marvin Kaplan, who's another fantastic character actor. And he is uh, saying, you know, oh, that guy's a collector. He, he knows exactly what he's going after. I don't deal in that kind of – old women don't wear that kind of ice. <laughs> too, the insurance is too high. Yeah, they're, they're too much ice. Wearing all that ice. Marvin Kaplan's great in this. And, you know, uh, uh, Chris, you and I, we uh, just spent some time talking about David Lynch movies. And he was also Uncle Pooch in Wild at Heart. I feel like with this episode, we see more of the supporting cast than we've seen in, like, any other episode in the show. Well, like, Simon Oakland's in it a lot. Jack Greenidge is in it a lot. Miss Emily is in it a lot. I was just kind of surprised. It felt like there was a lot more with the people at the office than there has been in any other episode on this show. 
I like that phone freaking scene that Kolchak does with Miss Emily and uh, Ron Updike. Yeah, that was good. The, I like this episode a lot because it it has a whole lot more sort of of his investigative journalism tropes sort of uh, at you know in full effect. Some of the episodes he just seems to fall into these things, but this one actually felt like he was doing his job, which is why I really appreciate this episode. And certainly that includes the the newsroom itself, which. Ordinarily, it feels like almost a pause in the episode every time we have to go back there. But this one felt like it had forward momentum every time we went there. This is something I kind of missed in the last couple of episodes. Kolchak, like, really vanquishing the bad guy for once, which feels like we haven't seen that. I mean, at the last episode, kind of. But, like, he's still, like, the Tom Skerritt dog is still running around. Well, there's some, what is it, a Doberman that shows up in this episode? And I was just like, oh, look, it's Tom Skerritt's brother. It's the dog with the feet again, with the extra toes. And I was wondering if Kolchak would go back to the office and be like, I saw the weirdest dog. Black and brown. And it had five toes. I was very surprised to see Carl not developing his own photos. I mean, we just spent half of the last episode in the dark room with him, and he's now he's got a guy who's deliver, uh, developing his photos for him. And luckily he gets a nice little quip on that guy about... Why didn't you stay a little longer and develop a personality? That was pretty nice. The jokes land in this episode. Quite often they do not on this series. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the that's kind of the thing with, you know, the show versus the the two movies is that the comedy sometimes just like doesn't work. Like you said, and so it's nice to see it's nice to see it actually working for once as opposed to just being like really awkward. More often than not, it feels like, okay, and now we have to have a joke here. Let's throw one in, as opposed to it's sort of uh, developing out of the situation. And uh, for some reason, these two writers seem to uh, be able to hit that better than uh, most of the other ones, I think. And I'm glad, too, that most of the humor isn't at the expense of Richard Keel. Like, they still treat him, they treat the Diablero as a credible threat. So we're not getting into jokey situations with him. We might get a little close to like Shaggy and Scooby running away sometimes, but we're not quite there, which is good. So it's not like, you know, Carl's trying to put funny hats on him or anything like that. As primitive as the effects are in this episode, I think they really hold up. I mean, I know it's a simple, like dissolve from a coyote to Richard Keel, but it's super effective for 1974. I mean, that would be credible now, I think, uh, just to do it that way. The transformations are, are like infinitely creepy. I don't remember his name now, the director of the episode, Grassoff, but uh, I thought he did a very good job of uh, layering in the atmosphere to the point of getting it to be frightening, as opposed to some of the episodes where it does just feel kind of ridiculous with a giant moss-suited man and such. And poor Eric Braden with his face covered in brown cotton balls. Yeah. Well, that's the good thing about Richard Keel is that he is so physically imposing. He is a special effect unto himself. Yeah, he is completely otherworldly. I mean, the guy was over seven foot tall, but yet he he looked monstrous, but he wasn't ugly. It, does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, Richard Keel's a good looking guy. And I thought they used some good music in this, especially for those transformation scenes. Yeah, and uh, I, I, what I found funny was the the sound every time the crow would appear they kind of uh they kind of electronicized it to the point where it sounded like uh like a, a callback to Hitchcock's the birds that kind of weird uh high pitched sound as opposed to using the actual sound of a crow 
Yeah, and the same thing for the coyote, too, right? Don't they replace him? Absolutely. The show's special effects have been a real sticking point because they haven't aged very well. But because this episode doesn't really rely heavily on, like, makeup and, like, super practical effects, I think it works really well. Because, like, there have been episodes of this show that have been just, like, so awkward to watch because it's like the effects are so distracting and this isn't i would say this is not one of them no i think as i said i think this is one of the best episodes of the entire series and uh, definitely you know i think maybe some of those effects that haven't aged well i don't know if they were ever that good Uh, i imagine back in 74 if you were watching it you'd be like what is that like why do they even bother but here, everything seems to flow really well, and uh, it probably does owe to Richard Keel his sort of presence as that character, and the fact that they never sort of joke it up. They uh, they allow him to be what he is, and just having it be an animal, then him, it's super creepy. <laughs> when Kolchak shows up, most of the time, the victims are dead already, so we don't get to see their deaths, and then even when he interacts with the Diablero, it's not like the Diablero is throwing people around. You know, we've seen that kind of attempt at the effect before where we see cops go flying like crazy. And luckily we don't see that with this. It, it's much more sedate and especially that the victims just get hypnotized. And I think all of the people that get hypnotized do a really good job of just, okay, here they go. Act like they're in a trance very well. So they don't have to worry about try to, like, I don't know, be gripped by the neck and held up and then have the panic look on their face. They just do what the Diablero wants, and then they die most of the time? Yeah, they get choked out. I mean, at one point, Richard Keel wraps his entire hand around a woman's neck. Well, I only say most of the time, because Kolchak does manage to save a couple. Oh, when they're doing, like, the auction. Right. Using his trusty Flash, which I think we've seen as a weapon before, haven't we? During the Alien episode? I don't know if you guys have covered that one yet. Kolchak meets the Predator? I think you're right. I think that was the one. It was the wine from the Flash that was driving it nuts. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Thank God for that tiny Instamatic of his. <laughs> Just hold it up and snap it. Ultimate defense in this one. I think my favorite part of this episode was at the beginning when he's taking a picture of the dog. The dead dog. Or oh, the dog's ear moves. <laughs> the dog just moves. I was just like, man. Cut one frame earlier. I know. It's just one of those things where I'm watching him like, you know, this is nitpicky, but at the same time, like, it's too funny to not ignore. Because, like, they make a point of talking about the thing with the dog, like, two other times. And he's even, like, holds up the picture. He's like, look, Vincenzo, look at the dog. What do you want from me, Carl? What I don't see what's going on with the dog. Vincenzo throws the, the photograph back. It lands so perfectly on the desk, I noticed. Yet that dog's ear has to move. That was Simon Oakland after, you know, all these years. He was a consummate picture thrower pro. No doubt. And it was nice to see that Kolchak and Vincenzo weren't just incessantly yelling at each other. Though Tony just did not want to believe him when it came to that story. And I was like, come on, Tony. After all this time, you don't trust Carl on this stuff. How many of his stories do you figure they actually print? I mean, if he's covering, like, the sports beat or something, he's probably (laughs) getting those things through. But as far as his features, it feels like a lot of them have to get killed every week. 
why is he even working there at this point? I know. I wonder that in every episode. It's like you're not publishing anything he's writing. You're just paying him to run around and be crazy. That's because Tony feels bad because Carl's wife was killed in a car accident. Oh, wait, no. Oh, my God. Here no, we go again. Oh, sorry. You've left ahead a few years. Well, I think you just, I think a bunch of people just turned this off, Mike, because you brought up the 2006 Night Stalker. And Carl's got this mark on his arm. Oh, my God. <laughs> They're just leaving by the fucking droves now. Let me mention my favorite part of this episode, which is this is really odd to say, but. It's him going up those stairs at the end and how exhausted he is and sweat covered by the end. You never see that. No. In any television from then or now. That was such a nice real moment to throw into the episode. Where his shirt is just completely destroyed. And he's just like, he's like, like looking at the numbers as he's going up. And it's just like, really? Another 10 floors? Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I, I really appreciated that. I don't know why, but I did. Where are we? It looks like we're in the teens somewhere. But when we get to 20, tell me, I'm going to throw up. I just realized that Carl uses the phone a couple times in this episode because he also manages to prank call the ballistics man and pretends that he's a cop and manages to get the information out of him. So Carl's really good at pranking. Well, he has to be as an investigative journalist. What's the other thing? The uh, the got the cops that are killing each other just by accident. They accidentally shot each other in the heart. Both at the same time. These things happen, Carl. It's a fluke of nature. He fell on a knife four times. Tell me, I don't know if he was in any other other episodes, but Ramon Bieri, he was the the sort of lieutenant in this episode, who's a great character actor on his own. Uh, he was in Sorcerer, William Friedkin's film Sorcerer. He's he's phenomenal. Has he been in other episodes of Cold Jack? I do not remember. Oh no. Now, every time we get a new police captain, that seems to be, there's like a revolving door at the Chicago police. I'm not sure what's going on there. I think it has something to do with the corruption of the Chicago police, but I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to have my legs broken, but I think there's something going on there. Actually, I do take it back. He came back in another episode, but he was a different guy. He was Captain Joe Baker in this, not Joe Don Baker, but Joe Baker, and then he's Captain Webster in Legacy of Terror. So he's there, but uh, they call him a, a different name in the other one. That's weird. They wouldn't just have him be the same character. Well, that wasn't that the whole thing with uh, Ruth McDevitt, where she played not Miss Emily in one episode, and then played Miss Emily like an episode later, except it was not Miss Emily because it's na her name was different. Right. Yeah. This is, I think the first one where she actually has uh, her it was, real name. It was actually name. the last one. Was it, was it the last one? one? It okay. The last one. Yeah. But it was the one prior where she had a different name. Yeah. And then she was a totally different person in the Ripper episode. See other Mike, you can't put your now hat on and, uh, you know, look at a show with continuity. That's not how this works. Hey, that, uh, no, hey, that's part of its charm. I'm just, uh, yeah, you know. yeah, no, I'm being sarcastic, but that's like the thing about this show is like, you know, I catch myself doing it a lot because like it is kind of unusual. Yeah, well, it also is kind of distracting. Yeah. <laughs> We're already suspending so much belief for this show that they could at least throw us the bone of having Ramon Vieri's character be the name and the same name in two episodes. I was surprised that it was Ramon Bieri or Ramon. 
I kept thinking when I would hear his voice and not be looking at the screen, I kept thinking it was Claude Aikens. <laughs> yeah, right. Very close. Even though he wasn't Joe Don Baker, his character was Walking Tall. With Richard Keel, one of his two episodes of the show, in the next episode, he, he's essentially probably playing some something very similar, right? I don't think so. I think in the next one, you can't even tell it's him. No, not at all. Okay. So with with kind of that in mind, how many times has Richard Keel been in a movie and had like no lines of dialogue? All of them. <laughs> Except for Happy Gilmore? That's, that's the only one. Oh, come on. He he spoke in Cannibal Run, didn't he? Yes. Was that Cannibal Run or was it Cannibal Run 2? I think it was the second one. Yeah, he was the second one. He was Jackie Chan's partner in that one. But in the in the first one, Jackie Chan had uh, uh, another Asian partner, even though I think they were supposed to be Japanese, which is unusual. He definitely spoke in The Humanoid, which is one of my favorite Star Wars ripoffs. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. Oh, you might have Is stumped me. Oh, man. It's it's fantastic. I want to say it's Italian, but I could be wrong. But I know he didn't speak in Ega, which is a f- wonderful, wonderful caveman movie. Oh, yes. One of one of the better caveman movies set in and around Palm Springs in the 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> I really like Richard Keel, though. He's fantastic, <laughs> right? They should have cast it. They should have had him as every villain in every Coltec, every Coltec episode. I mean, they could have gotten away with it because you know he could have just could have played the werewolf in that werewolf episode. Again, like I think that we really have a villain that is quite memorable in this episode. I mean, that's the thing. Like Tom Skerritt was great in Devil's Platform, and now Richard Keel was pretty good in Bad Medicine. Up until this point, I like most of the villains in the episodes have been kind of like a retread of a previous villain or bad. Well, I'd just like to point out that this was a clear-cut case of whitewashing that was not a Native American playing that character. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no, it's this big dude from Detroit. Oh, my God. That's uh, whitewashing in two cases because what Chief Rolling Thunder, also played by Victor Jory, yeah. <laughs> Which made me laugh because they, he's surrounded by tribesmen who are clearly Native American behind him. I'm just like, I'm wondering what that day was like on the set. Those three guys going like, Jesus Christ, I could, <laughs> I could say these, I could say these ten lines. You just give it to me. Actual Native American? No. Okay, never mind. So I actually thought that he was because I didn't know who Victor Jory was before the episode, before I watched it. Like I legit thought he was Native American because like. They did a really good job with the makeup. Let's put it that way. Darkening him up, as it were. Ah, oh, too part of the problem, man. <laughs> Mike, Mike, Mike's too triggered now. They're both going to leave. Oh, they left here alone. <laughs> Talking about how I like when white actors play Native Americans. My God. I'm going to alienate the Native American. Uh, well, Native at least it was 74. Right. And not like, you know, two years ago with Johnny Depp playing one. How dare you? I was just in a in a Twitter argument, which is a horrible way to start a sentence. But I was just in Mike, a Twitter. Have anything better to do? My God! Twitter argument about that movie, and I thought that was pretty good. Uh, no, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're wrong. That should be the end of the argument. <laughs> I've still never no. seen it. So. Oh well, now we have an episode. You're better off. <laughs> Am I? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Is it really that bad? Yes. It's dreadful. I mean, come on, it's got Johnny Depp in it. It can't be that all bad. 
Have you seen any Johnny Depp movies lately? In the last decade? Yeah. What was that? What was that one movie he was in about the? Oh God, with like Jeff Goldblum and Paul Bettany. Oh my God, the one where he got the paycheck for being in it. Oh, what the? Mortimer. Uh, yeah. Oh, Mortimer. Oh God. Something like that. Yeah, I remember that movie. I tried to watch that. I turned it off. I even saw The Tourist. I even saw where he becomes a sentient computer. They're all so memorable. <laughs> They're so good because Johnny Depp is in them. Just burning off all the goodwill from that first Pirates movie ever since. How many pirate movies are we on? Waiting on that sixth one to finally put the franchise to bed. That's going to go as long as the Transformers go. What was that movie called? Mortimer? I think it's, it, you know, and that's the thing about this episode that kind of threw me for a loop is that, you know, the last episode was actually really good. And so was this one. And, you know, the first handful of episodes we did for this podcast, you know, the, of the original Night Stalker, there was a lot of stuff that I kind of had a problem with. But this episode, I, I, I can't really find a whole lot to nitpick about outside yeah, of just, moving outside dogs of just like here. Yeah, like that. But that's just like technical bullshit. Like, this is a solid episode beginning to end. And it has a pretty good conclusion, too. I mean, there's an actual conclusion to the story. And I mean, I guess he he, does he pay his debt and then disappears or does he die? Oh, he dies. He sees himself in that mirror and then he, he crinkles up and blows away. I don't feel so good. Mm. Another great effect. Yeah, that worked for me. With his giant deformed skull that didn't look like a skull, like any human skull ever in the history of humans, except for maybe Joseph Merrick, the elephant man skull. I mean, come on. Yeah, Richard but he Keel's was never tall, human to begin with. Right. Oh. Put that in your peace pipe and smoke it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break. I mentioned earlier that I was trying to get an interview with John Huff, the co-writer of Bad Medicine, along with a few other episodes of Kolchak the Night Stalker. I did manage to line that up, so let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back with that interview right after these brief messages. Ready, set. Spartan Race is back for 2018, and we're accepting no excuses. Barbed wire crawls, tire drags, spear throws, and much more. Whatever your ability, you'll discover the right challenge for you. Take on our 5 to 25 kilometer events designed to push you to limits you never knew you could overcome. Complete an obstacle course race and let adventure back into your life. Are you ready to unleash your inner Spartan warrior? Visit spartanrace.uk. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. How to continue a television series after a mage actor has left the cast. Part 3. The Doctor Who Method Give the character the ability to completely alter his appearance, and thus be played by any available actor. This also lets the character evolve into suitable form for any given audience. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com 
you get involved in show business? I met my writing partner of that day, L. Ford Neal, at seminary. We were both seminary students at the School of Theology at Claremont. Ford Neal was an excellent still photographer and cinematographer, and I thought I could write. And I was kind of drumming myself out of school in my third year of graduate school, going for a doctorate, never got it, wound up with a master's degree in communications. That school had a fine film department where you could study secular films, documentary, Hitchcock, Riefenstahl, all manner of films, but uh, so that pastors and church administrators could be filmically literate. Of course, most of those church programs have gone the way of the dinosaur, and they're not there anymore. But Ford Neal was involved with a an attempt to do a documentary on a domestic marijuana harvest. In uh, This is when marijuana was very, very illegal, even in the state of California. Uh, doing a domestic marijuana harvest... Uh, where marijuana was growing wild out in the Midwestern states like Illinois and Indiana. And uh, he knew a person who said, we could just get a farm and go back there. And uh, by night, uh, go along and cut this wild marijuana, come back and cure it in our barn and come out and sell it to stupid Californians. And uh, would you like to make a film of this? And Ford said, sure. And he made an, a documentary film showing this process, night harvesting and and uh, drying and all the stuff and the lore and inter- interviews and stuff. He needed a shill. He needed somebody to receive his footage. And I was that guy. And I received gladly these uh, canisters of 16-millimeter film. I ultimately even was his runner to the deluxe lab in Hollywood on Gower to have these things processed and uh, assembled. Uh, so I got into it that way. And that never really reached fruition, but it got us attention. And after that attention kind of evaporated, the producers of of uh, a little picture, a little-known picture with, God, it's not Ralph Meeker, it's not, I don't want to mix it up, it's called Kane's Cutthroats. And it's a Western with a modern dimension and an ancient and an old dimension where you have modern day bikers and you have an old guy on a horse and it's a cross reference reference Western uh, shot in and around pioneer town, California, which I did not know then, but which would meet up with later. And these producers were to had a hole in the wall office at the general services studio of that time. And they optioned us and tried to shop it. But the only problem was Ford had been an artist true to his muse and shot in black and white. And uh, nobody would touch it. Nobody thought it was that controversial because it was in black and white. It was beautiful black and white, shot in a very fine grain film, and it was a fine-looking thing. Ford and I then, after that, decided to write together. And we had enjoyed the architecture of the Dirty Harry script. And right now, I should have had those those writers looked up. The screenwriters of Dirty Harry for the Don Siegel, Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry. We studied that script for its architecture, for what scenes followed what scenes, the pacing, 
the typology of scenes, and we then still needed representation. And we didn't have representation. Nobody would read our shit. Nobody would do it. So our, another classmate named Steve Rosemary, who was a, a brilliant pastoral counseling psychology major there at Claremont, decided he wanted to quit school, and he became uh, our agent, licensed by the state of California, able to represent scripts. He was a signatory agent with the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild. That took a little bit of doing, but we got it done. He became pedigree agent. Uh, nobody had done that before. If you can't get representation, you're supposed to get an agent. You can't get an agent unless you've got a, gotten a sale and you're caught in the tautology. You can't get, you can't succeed unless you succeed. You can't, you can't succeed. So no one had ever heard of us creating our own literary agency to get our stuff represented. He submitted that script around to people and finally Darren McGavin who had made two hit uh, TV movies that were called The Night Stalker and then the follow-up one Dan Curtis movies some of the highest rated, rated TV movies of the time Darren was entrusted with doing a series which he renamed Cold Shack the Night Stalker and Darren had seen our script called us in and he admired the architecture in that thing and said, could, would you, I'm going to do a series. Would you like to try to write an episode? And we sure said, heck yes. We, we were happier than dogs to do that. And that is how the first episode we wrote for the Night Stalker, Bad Medicine came to be. And it took months and uh, Darren gave us feedback and through that, the series started, and that's how we met Cy Shermack. Our first story editor was a brilliant writer named Paul Playton. Paul Playton left the series and was replaced by the eminent David Chase, the David Chase. And we wrote three episodes, Bad Medicine, Mr. Ring, and The Sentry for that series before it was canceled. And that's how we got in. That's how we got our guild cards. Steve Rosemary's agency handled other writers. He actually attracted other writers. One writer, I won't name his name. He probably won't like it if I do it, but went on to do a, a big picture. And as soon as he got any notoriety, he left Steve. He was picked by a larger agency. But it wasn't just us after a while. The agency had uh, Rosemary Management had integrity as a literary agency standing on its own two legs. Believe it or not, we got a, an office in Brentwood, California, a second floor little office on the edge of the Veterans Administration fence grounds. We bought it the week after Richard Nixon stepped down from the presidency. This office belonged to his brother, Donald Nixon. And the Donald Nixon office was placed there with the hedges shorn around so federal agents could watch him and protect him as a relative of the president. But once Nixon left office and Donald Nixon left that little fishbowl office, it was available for rent and we took it. It had no locks on the inside door. You could not lock yourself in in case he was held hostage. The, the Secret Service could run in and protect him. So we had Donald Nixon's old office. We thought that was uh, 
weird. <laughs> but so there we were, and uh, we wrote those three scripts. Sometimes we worked at my home, at my apartment. Sometimes we worked in that office. And uh, the call from Darren was, we need a different monster. And Cy, too. We need a different monster every week. We need a different nemesis every week. It can't be the same nemesis. We've done the werewolf. We've done the vampire. We're going to do another vampire. We're going to do other things. And uh, we would suggest certain nemesis monsters, uh, adversaries for Carl Kolchak to go after. And many times the other good writers associated with that series and the name, the, the names on that series are an honor roll. Not to not to forget the great Jimmy Sangster, who's in the background. We actually asked David Chase, "Is Jimmy Jimmy Sangster actually here on this lot?" And he said, "Yes." And Jimmy Sangster is a real person. Yes, he's a real person. We had grown up watching Jimmy Sangster out of uh, scripts out of uh, uh, you know British movies, the Quatermass stuff uh, with Brian Donlevy, the Quatermass knockoffs for American audiences, uh, the features. We never got to meet Jimmy Sangster, the great Jimmy Sangster. But it was a great honor roll of talent and writers, and we were very fortunate to be a part of that. Um, the Sentry, Darren told us to write, or not the Sentry, the, the first one, the Diablero, the Bad Medicine with Richard Keel. Darren told us to write rapid, write more than a page a minute. It will be a longer script, and we're going to speak it very fast, as in Howard Hawks' His Girl Friday. It's going to be rat-a-tat, machine-gun dialogue, so really right, right thick, right dense. And that's what we tried to do. You get a flavor of that in his openings in The Bad Medicine. Not as much in Mr. Ring, and some in the century. Uh, but that's that was what he was trying to do. It was more the rule in Hollywood is a page a minute, but we were basically doing a page and a half a minute at points because Darren's delivery was going to be clipped fast, bam, 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 more than a page a minute. So a script that would be fifty pages long ordinarily was maybe fifty-five pages, fifty-seven pages, fifty-eight pages. And that was unusual, and Darren would get that in. Darren could do that delivery and would encourage the other actors to be that way. We we didn't look like anybody else. We were beer, both bearded and wore tweed jackets like seminary students or college professors. My, my wife is laughing here. And uh, one time when we were on the lot much later in the MGM lot, uh, <laughs> Chip's days, we were still dressed like that. Nobody dressed like we did. I mean, David Carradine from the Kung Fu series looked at us and thought we were fucking weird. And I look across the parking lot, and there's Steven Spielberg over there across the lot, across the parking lot in front of the Thalberg building, looking. And there are hundreds of people walking around, but he's looking at us with his hands on his hip. He's kind of shading his eyes, looking at us like, what in the fuck are they? What are they? What are they? Two guys in beards, in tweed jackets. Cy Shermack called us the Smith Brothers, like the Wild Cherry Cough Drops people. We, we didn't we didn't look like anybody else. <laughs> so, if that's a distinction, then that's 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 it. The Sentry was the last episode of the of the Darren McGavin Night Stalkers. We 
knew that it was it was having ratings problems. And but Darren was very kind to us. He invited us onto the set. We got onto the set multiple times. And uh, on the century set, Darren's opening monologue, which is one of the last things filmed when he's running away from the century uh, reptile and he's making his, his, his statement in tape recorder. He's looking at me. He's looking at me past the director and I'm just there, just, just charmed, charmed. And he, after they say cut, he says, how was that, John? I said, that was wonderful. And everybody there just goes, oh, because they knew they were all fired. This was a, this was dead. These were, this was zombie work. And uh, one of the craftsmen was going around with a bottle of vodka, a full bottle of vodka, just drinking out of the bottle right there in the open, uh, speaking French. Oui, le docteur. And so we go, what in the world? This is a depressed set. Well, they've all, they, they've all been given their walking papers, and this is the last day of, of the last job. And we were just their gaga-eyed, stardust-eyed, and um, we, you know, we eventually people would look at you and say, you know, if the scripts had been better, we wouldn't have lost our jobs. We would have better ratings. ABC wouldn't have, you know, and on, on down the line. So. So you, you always blame the writer. <laughs> so, but we learned a lot from that whole experience. Um, we met Richard Keel early on due to Darren inviting us on the set. Richard Keel, way back before he had been cast as um, the Diablero, he was another monster, and I, I think it was Spanish Moss Monster. And he was going to be the Diablero, and his main concern, he uh, talked with us a while, that he was always being confused with Ted Cassidy, the big, tall Ted Cassidy who gets kicked in the nuts by Paul Newman and uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And we said, well, we wanted you, we wanted you, and I had gone so far as to express to Cy how much I liked him because I had seen him in a in a role in... Um, I'd forgotten that he was in the Twilight Zone to serve man, and I had seen him in a thriller episode that was narrated or hosted by Boris Karloff, and I loved him. And I suggested him to Cy, and Cy immediately told me, we don't take casting suggestions from writers. And I spoke, okay, okay, okay. But then Cy casting anyway. And uh, I, my lesson there was, even though somebody tells you no, you can at least pitch it. You can at least try. You can be told to go fuck yourself, but you can always put it out there and try it. It worked. It worked for Cy. And uh, I thought the Diablero was a pretty interesting creature. Uh, we got the idea from a page in Carlos Castaneda's second book, Journey to Ixtlan, and uh, he was a bona fide Southwest personage in the in the mythology, in the mythopoic understanding of the tribals, and we thought that was good. Uh, it, it it worked. Many people have chastised me then for, uh, since then for for misusing that great heritage, and uh, I I plead no low. 
I plead no law. It was an honest-to-goodness different creature. Other people have used apparitions from Southwest Native American culture, and uh, I think it, it should be. I think it, it references us to the formidable quality and the depth of Native American culture, which is so often overlooked. We're Greco-Roman biased for our mythology. We even favor certain South American uh, entities in, in our lore. But Native American culture is rich and deep. Thomas Jefferson thought so and said that these cultures should be studied. Of course, that was denied. And it, um, in my own small way, I'm paying homage to the depth and the fearsomeness and the fulsomeness of Native American culture in that creature. Mr. Ring. Mr. Ring, my idea, I plead no low for that. Mr. Ring, robotic, autonetics. David Chase says, I can't find the word autonetics in my dictionary. And it's because it, it then was a new word of very, very small mechanisms for missile guidance systems and other machinery. Very, very minute, just common common concept now, and I don't know if the word's even uh, used anymore, but Mr. Ring was a, an AI creature, creature. We got that idea, stumped that idea. We were invited to Darren's home with his wife, the late, lovely Kathy McGravin, Kathy Brown, and we got drunk, and Kathy Brown, <clears throat> Kathy McGavin was drinking some kind of superior cognac out of a bubble-shaped big glass as big as a volleyball, a snifter as big as a volleyball, I swear. And they didn't let us have that. That was like uh, that was like if you could catch on fire, you know. But we got royally drunk and talked about this is our version of a of a Frankenstein monster. This is a Frankenstein creature. And Darren said, do you know the name of Mary Shelley's creature? And I said, Adam. And he said, you're the first person in 15 years. I've asked that question. Nobody knows. They all say it's Frankenstein. Steve says Frankenstein. Ford says Frankenstein. Everybody says Frankenstein. No, it's Adam. <clears throat> and that's the whole texture of that novel. Um uh, well, what she's doing there in the in the stormy mansion with uh, uh, Shelley and uh, the the other poet, her statement. I didn't tell him that I got that from reading Forrest J. Ackerman's famous Monsters of Filmland. That was my literary depth. But uh, I told Forrest Ackerman that later, and I don't think he appreciated it very much. I said I really made a hit with Darren McGavin knowing that Adam was the name of the Frankenstein monster. But I didn't tell him I got it from you, but I want to thank you for that. He he gave me a, a cold fish handshake. <laughs> anyway, the Frankenstein homage, both to the book and the movies, when the doctor is about to disassemble the Karloff monster, and the Karloff monster wakes up on the operating table and grabs the doctor by the neck, that's what we were dealing with. Um, that was our takeoff. The additional elements were that the robot was not completely programmed and wanted to program itself. 
and wanted to program itself in the realm of ethics and philosophy of anthropology. And so it was robbing libraries, robbing audio books from libraries to program itself. Very odd self-programming, as if how the computer needs more help in programming itself. We loved the ending where the robot basically is, is dying on the steps, having been riddled with bullets by the cops, and says, Mama. With, because of his fixation on the female scientist who had been uh, removed from the project. We thought that was very good, a, a good moment in the series. As for the sentry, I spoke all through the series, we need a reptile, we need a reptilian. And they said, there's nobody, nobody wants to see that's silly, that's silly. Reptilian monsters were not in vogue in 1974. We envisioned the reptilian sentry to be an underground creature, in our mythology, to be um, guarding something, his eggs. We envisioned it to be sort of a creature from the Black Lagoon, plasticine, skin-coated, humanistic figure. Very, very nicely done, of course, like in Del Toro's uh, shape of water. We, 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 in our mind's eye, we saw it being something like that. Instead, we got, uh, a very, we got a makeup job that, that hide more to, uh, the alligator people. <laughs> the, the old, uh, B minus C minus movie with, I think, Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney Jr. The alligator people. There is a man, a human body with the head of an alligator on it. That alligator head is better than our alligator head. We saw that alligator, we saw that alligator head on that set and we, we just cringed. And we, you know, we, uh, anyway, we knew that the series was closing downs and we wrote a lot of tunnels and concrete oblique, um, Brutal architecture spaces that Universal could use its own parking facilities, its own garage facilities, its own long hallways, and uh, even the lobby of the Black Tower Executive Building uh, for Universal was used in that. That's one of the rare times they shot in their front office tower uh, foyer, and uh, it's it's interesting for that respect. And they had leftover tunnels raw tunnel sets from the Charlton Heston uh, movie Earthquake. And so you went from the refined factory tunnels into the raw tunnels in, in the making. So it was a very cheap episode for them, which they needed. They were, it, I think, the cost of, an, of a Night Stalker episode, and someone can correct me, the people who have researched this more, I think it was only in the low hundreds, uh, under 200,000 or something, maybe a hundred and the number 134,000, uh, lingers in my mind, which in those days still was very, very low. It was a much, it deserved much more attention from ABC and much more attention from, uh, the studio in general and that it has it to this day has a very dedicated following, and it should have been treated with more respect. 
to achieve the level of the TV movies that originally launched the whole idea. I am curious, going way back to when you guys were shopping around that script that you um, had studied the, the form of Dirty Harry, what was that original script like? What was that about? That script was called Oklahoma Special, and it was a state investigator for the state of Oklahoma who wore a bolo tie and a, a, a cowboy hat, and it was written for and aimed at Warren Oates. We loved Warren Oates. We never got it to him. We wrote it for Warren Oates, and he was worked directly for the state police in that state, and he was a recalcitrant, dirty, hairy-like person in that school and went after uh, not a serial killer like Dirty Harry did, but like uh, after a, a syndicate criminal who was bombing people and blasting people and uh, running the state and who had a an office, a penthouse office at the top of a huge grain elevator, an industrial grain elevator. And all of a sudden you're in this shitty grain elevator and you go up the elevator and you come out and you're in very nice, uh, plush, lush executive suites, uh, many, many stories above the plains of Oklahoma. And there was um, a lot of killing in it, a lot of uh, blasting, a lot of stuff. And it, it got attention. It, it, it was our calling card. We followed, we, we had studied something in school called form critical analysis, a form of deconstruction, whether you're deconstructing a scripture or, or an ancient writing of any type. There is a German school of deconstruction by the great uh, German uh, scholar Bultmann. And he has a, a term called Formgeschichte, which is a German, almost a nonsense word, meaning form story. And he will say that there's very little original in any literature. These are all forms that enable us to do comparative mythology from one culture to another. In other words, a flood myth, an Isis and Osiris rising and dying myth. Uh, all types of stories that occur in this culture, parables or beatitudes or whatever you want to say, and you can find that similar material in another culture. And it's because underlying it, there is a frame or a form that is used again and again and again. And these are universals. For instance, a flood story can be found in every mythology we know of, from Inuit, Aboriginal, Native American, African, Asian, uh, Judeo-Christian, that's Johnny-come-lately, Mesopotamian, Babylonian, uh, Greco-Roman, um, Northern European, there's always a flood story, a flood story, vastly different in its cloaking, in its cultural rendering, but a flood story. Now, uh, that's only one example. Think, if you will, of a gen of an old General Motors assembly line <clears throat> where they have X body frames coming down the assembly line, body by Fisher. And some bodies will be a Buick, some will be a Chevrolet, some will be something else, but it's always the same frame. And that's what a form story is. That's a frame on which 
varying cultures apply their own personal meaning, their own bracketed absolute truth of meaning. So what we did with Dirty Harry was uh, deconstructed it. We deconstructed it by scene, by act, by the total arc of the whole script, and what we need here is such and such. What we need here is next. What does Dirty Harry do next? What is next? What is next? After this, after this, after this. And we basically did a plot analysis, a formal analysis, and uh, it was that script is a very fine script, very good script. And it's a good school for what a story needs to do, how you introduce your hero, how you exercise your first act of, of uh, action, how you introduce your villain, how you, how you co-mingle, how you find uh, humorous uh, uh, relief. Uh, I'm being simplistic here with it, but, we analyzed that story and made our story follow that analysis pattern. Uh, we didn't rip it off. We didn't even rip off its plot, but we ripped off its form. We were students of the form. What does a good story do in Act One? What does a good story do in you? Hell, you get this kind of talk in McKee and people who analyze scripts and tell you that if you don't achieve these three items by the first 20 or 30 pages, by page 70, you're fucking dead. And they're right. You have to achieve certain things. I saw one the other day. I can't think of the man's name. Great uh, screen doctor, screenwriting doctor who said you have to achieve three things. You, you have to uh, get the reader to know what the issue is right off the bat. What's the challenge? Get the reader to know the humanity of the hero or shero, the protagonist, and then get the whole issue in miniature established by the end of Act 1. If you don't have that, your Act 2 is dead. Your Act 3 or Act 4, they're worse than dead. Most scripts fail in the middle. He said, this particular writer uh, said, that unless you have, you have to resist the tangents. You have to resist dealing with, too many specifics, you have to get to what the issue is. What's the crux? What's the challenge? What's the story? What's the whole problem? And that's, that's what we did. That's what we did. We painted, we painted our hero very quickly as fast as Dirty Harry. Harry Callahan is pay, pay, painted the first time we see him. And as soon as you see him, then you see him getting dressed out by uh, John Vernon and the mayor in the mayor's office and other people. Uh, you, you see the whole, uh, you see the type of character he is and the world he lives in and the issues he works against. So by the time he foils the bank robbery, which is an incidental occurrence, it doesn't have anything to do with catching Zodiac, catching the, the killer of the story. It's a demonstration of his character. You have to know what kind of guy he is, what kind of character he is. This is not just true of that picture. It's true of any picture. It's true of Greek mythology. It's true of Hercules. It's true of everything. It's, 
it's uh, you you hold the audience by the hand. They want to be involved. How do they identify? The hero has strengths. The hero has challenges. The hero has weaknesses. The hero has humanity. And that identification, you can lose it, but if you keep that, keep the humanity of your hero, then you go. And the challenges, the challenges, the challenges uh, pile on. I'm being very simplex, but that's that's how we analyzed Dirty Harry. We looked at it and looked at it and looked at it and uh, followed it. We could have done that with five or ten other scripts of the day, and they uh, they would have they would have been just fine for us. You can do that with Casablanca. You can take Casablanca apart and and just scene by scene by scene by scene by scene. Oh, now we're getting to the point to find out how Rick and Ingrid Bergman were together, and you get in your flashback, and then you come back, and you come, you and you build this A plot line, B plot line, C plot line. And you know there's going to be a convergence. You know they're going to come together. And you can, with any great script, with Some Like It Hot, a Billy Wilder masterwork, you, you, you look at that script and you have your identification from the first, first page. Those two guys. Those two guys. And then they get into real trouble. Real fucking bad trouble. And they dress up as girls. And they get into worse trouble as that. And then they fall in love variously with Marilyn Monroe. And then the criminals come after them there. And you, you see it. You see the build of it and to, to analyze it. And all you're hooked from the very start because you were hooked in the first. And the first, I laugh every time I see that picture when I see Tony Curtis and Jack Lemon playing their instruments right there. You, you're going through the orchestra, going by the, 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 Chorus girls' butts and everything. You're going over there, going over there, and you find them. There they are. There they are. They're not very good musicians, but they're happy. They're happy dogs in that band. And playing that bass and playing the saxophone and going and and winking at at the girls, well, you like them. If you don't like them, you're not going to like the rest of that picture. And when they get embroiled in the St. Valentine's Day massacre, you love them. You love them. And when they come out dressed as girls, my gosh, it's, can't, you can't, can't lose any number of movies. I saw Ron Howard in one of his master class, um, lectures say that the people say there are three or four stories, five or six stories. Goethe tried to say there were 15 or 18 stories. And uh, Francois Polti said there were seven or eight stories that were used. The rest of the stories are so obscure that we don't ever use them. Ron Howard says, I think there's only one story. And I think he's right. There's only one story. There are no stories. There's only one story. With Kolchak, the series run was six months. So how are you handling the pacing of just turning out? I mean, even three scripts over six months, I would think is a pretty amazing pace. Well, thank you. We uh, worked our butts off. We were having a great time. And part of the reason my left hand doesn't work today is that I i was the typist. Ford didn't even type. He sat there and he was an idea man and a dictator many times. And I would type and then it would be all fucked up. And then I'd type it all night to make it clean and um, had a big old Olympic manual typewriter, not even an electric. 
I have been typing since high school, and I date myself. It's uh, about fifty-five. God damn it! About fifty-five years. I've been typing like a like a jaybird, and um, my I've got the left hand that doesn't work today to show it to prove it. <laughs> and so, there's nothing higher. No drug I've found. Nothing higher than getting something on a page and achieving a moment to read that back, to look at that back and say, yeah, that's funny and laugh at your own shit and stuff and say, man, that's pretty good. I hope they like it. That's the high. Uh, somebody said the greatest high there is, is the high of human achievement. Well, one of the greatest human achievements is getting something on that cold white page, that empty hostile page, filling that with words that work and you go, my God, it's a miracle. Fucking a miracle. That's what does it. I've read, I've talked to a lot of great writers, big writers, successful writers, far more successful than I, and they're the same way. They go and they go and they go and they go and they, they, they work on it morning, noon, and night. I can type, uh, I can work, work on a script nonstop and have to be pulled away from the table. I can work on a book or a script and just get up to go to the bathroom and, and eat a little bit of food all the time. <laughs> all the time. I was going to say, how many, 12 hours a day? No, fuck. 18 hours a day, 20 hours a day. And there were times uh, you just like it. You just like it. And yes, you know it's hard. Your eyes, you get tired. You get angry. Uh, all these things come up. But the achievement of that is such a payback. I don't know how else to explain it. That's the high. Once you're done with those first drafts and you, or uh, however many drafts you go through before you're like, okay, this is good to go for Kolchak. What's the process after that? Does David Chase have to give it his blessing? Does it go through Cy yeah. Shermack? What's okay. Yes. Mr. Ring has a lot of David Chase in it. And, uh, Sentry has a little, uh, Diablero, uh, bad medicine. There's a lot of us. Uh, Darren McGavin would get out his pen, Cy Shermack, get out his pen and look at it and look at it. So it's a collaborative art. It's a collaborative craft. You are not a king. You are a member of a team. And you're an originative member of the team. You're filling that first draft. I, we, uh, this is another subject. Ford, Neil, and I had the unique Look, we've gotten our acts down so well that when we did a Chips episode or two, we did 40 of them, wrote or edited, participated in 40 Chips episodes. We did about, we did some Chips episodes <clears throat> where we'd send in that first draft and we'd wait for their response to our first draft and we'd have to, for which we would write a second draft for which we would write then a third draft and revision and revision, go through five stages, and they never would call. And we finally would call, and we'd say, hey, we haven't gotten the call back. And they said, hey, we're fucking sh shooting that. We went from first draft to camera draft. And uh, our story editor of that series, William D. Gordon, said he only had to do some minor work, and it was it jumped the line. It was ready to go. He had to change the color of a car, change a name. Bang, it was ready. And it was an overnight typing job, and it was done. And so we got paid for one draft for all those five drafts. We got 
So we had that distinction. We were not that good for Night Stalker. We were learning our craft there. But Cy Shermack was invaluable as a teacher. David Chase is a challenging person to be in a room with. Darren McGavin, who Cy Shermack calls uh, not just a pain in the ass, but a monumental pain in the ass uh, in his book Showrunner or... Uh, Darren McGavin was his own talent. He was he was a tough customer, and he'd worked with the greats, and he was a great. And so you get these egos in the room, and, and you crack heads, and their heads are stronger. You've got to listen. You've got to try. You've got to keep pitching, and uh, it, it, it's it's a collaborative collaborative art. So I imagine. Cy Shermack liked you quite a bit because you ended up working with him for many years after this. The best teacher in the business I've had. Cy Shermack would look at us in his palatial executive office, had a better parking spot than any executive at MGM, even the people who ran the whole studio, because he was making more money for the studio. He was a number uno dude on that lot because Chips at that time in that part of his career, Chips was making more money for the studio than anything else they had, anything else that NBC had, and executives were jealous of Cy Shermack for his parking space. His chauffeur limo would come up to, like, I just let him out in front of the, by the gate. I mean, it was, like, amazing. Cy had that power, and he had that clout, and he deserved it. Cy would look at you and say, who do we care about? Why do we want to do this picture? And uh, maybe that isn't original with him, but it's the jockey, not the horse. Again, the form geschichte, that was his principle. Who do we care about, and why do we want to do this picture? Because you're doing a repeat episode from a series everyone has seen. Well, why do you want to see another episode of this? The same principle attaches to Star Wars, to any movie, to Mission Impossible, to any movie with which you are doing a sequel. It has to achieve another, it has to bow to another rule called the same but different. You have to come back to the same experience you had before, but it has to be different. And as we know, the same but different is a very difficult task to maintain. Was that sequel as good as the first one? Is the umpteenth Star Wars as good as the first one? Some say yes, some say no. Is Mission Impossible maintaining as good as the the first or the second one? Is James Bond as good as the 14th one or the first four? The synoptic James Bond? No. Russia, Goldfinger, Thunderball. Is it the same in some ways? Is it as good or is it not as good? Is it Man with the Golden Gun or is it Octopussy? What, what, what is that? Is it the same? Does it achieve? Does it master the same but different challenge? There are two types of producers. There's the originative producer and the curative producer. The originative producer fucking fills that page. He gives you the idea and you go, wow, man, yeah, yeah. He may be able to be George Lucas forever, but George Lucas can't be George Lucas forever. So you have that second type of producer called the curative producer. And that's no just respect to George Lucas. I like Star Wars. I like George Lucas. I like his pictures that didn't work. I like his pictures that do work. I find him a fascinating filmmaker. The curative producer knows what to cut 
and knows what to keep. The curative producer knows the delicacy of the same but different rule. It's almost like Zen. So when did the TV business change for you? Because I know that you rode up into the early 80s writing episodic television. What changed for you? Well, it's a, it's a tough racket. <clears throat> There's always younger, new writers who are coming in, <laughs> pardon me, with fresh ideas. And people will say to you, you know, you guys are getting too old. You're too old. You're in your, you're 41. You're, you're uh, 39. And there are some great writers in television who are in their 60s, so it doesn't always follow. But every, every kind of crap thinking is used. You're burned out. You're burned out. We had a script that was accepted for the great series Heart to Heart. And, uh, Donald, Donald Roos, Donald Ross was working well with us and he approved us. We loved him. And he called us one day and was talking. I said, Hey, we've been thinking more about things. Just guys, I got to tell you, we've just been canceled. I've always wondered if we had gotten that heart to heart script off, we would have injected a little more life into our episodic writing career, but it was not meant to be. It's a tough game. If a great writer like Donald Roos, Donald Ross, I've heard his name pronounced both ways, R-O-O-S, and Don Roos. If a great writer like that gets canceled and other writers get canceled and certain David Chase series have been canceled, then, then anything can happen. It's a tough racket. It's you're dealing with a lot of know-it-alls who can't write, but they can criticize. And like the writer, the writers are spoken of in The Last Tycoon, the Ilya Kazan movie with De Niro as the Thalberg character. Give the writers money, but don't give them power. That's Fitzgerald speaking from the bottom of his knowledge heart. It's never easy. Our guild, the Writers Guild of America West, talks about this phenomenon. Great writers, William Goldman, uh, for instance, uh, often speak of this. My favorite writer when I was coming up was Sterling Siliphant, and he is much maligned these days, but he wrote very informatively about the perils of, of, of writing. And he's, he, he wrote four scripts at a time for Route 66. Four different secretaries, four different tables, and he went around and dictated to each one like a master chess player playing four games at a time. That's what that guy did. Can you tell me, how did uh, Zyrox 7 come about? Zyrox 7 came about. Now, my wife's going to put down her book for this. <clears throat> when I... Moved out into uh, Pioneer Town to die of leukemia. I had just had a splenectomy and um, was bent over. I had a, a scar the size of a tent flap in my front. Scar a dog could run through, a flap opening. Uh, had a splenectomy. I moved out there. Um, Somebody came, a great friend came to my door and said, they're filming The Howling Seven, New Moon Rising. I said, The Howling? Based on the Joe Dante? Yes, this is the seventh edition of it. The Howling Seven, they're filming it down here. And the priest, the guy who's playing the priest in this, 
had to go to jail because he had wants and warrants he didn't know about, and they took him off to jail. And my good friend, the late Ernie Kester, said, uh, I told Clive Turner about you that you'd written Night Stalker and you'd written Chips, and uh, he wants to know if you want to act in this thing. I said, yeah, Ernie, I wrote those things, but I didn't act in them. I haven't acted since high school, and uh, then it wasn't good. And he said, no, that's okay. He was very impressed. And I said, well, listen, yeah, I want to do it. I'm back with Ernie. I'd be the priest going around with this detective looking for a werewolf who's hiding in Pioneer Town. And New Line Studios, you know, Lord of the Rings, New Line, had the use of the howling title, which they had to pay for, you know, pay somebody, probably Mr. Dante himself or somebody. And the use of some clips of the preceding Howling 6, Howling 5, and Howling 4. And they had a producer, a long-haired Australian producer with a wonderful motorbike collection named Clive Turner. And Clive Turner had been the actual, the accountancy producer for The Lawnmower Man, the Jeff Fahey movie, The Lawnmower Man. And he had impressed them with his organization, and they had approximately $335,000 to spend. That's all they had to spend. So they set, put out the message, can, we've got the title, The Howling, seven. We've got $335,000. Your cast can't be paid. You've got to hire a skeleton crew. Is there anyone willing to take this? And Clive Turner says, I can do that. And so Clive Turner's at a party, and he meets a friend of mine named Jan Stout, who's a public relations music fan and a public relations artist. And she tells him about Pioneer Town, where Gene Autry used to film, where Roy Rogers invested, where uh, Hopalong Cassidy's uh, son, uh, sidekick, uh, Russell Hayden, who played Lucky, the impetuous Lucky, he had a little set town there called Hayden Ranch, where Gene Autry filmed his a series, Annie Oakley with Gail Davis, uh, Range Rider with Jock Mahoney, and uh, Barbara Stanwyck worked there. It was a movie set town, 40 miles north of Palm Springs, up in a ragged, jagged uh, range of mountains known as the Sawtooths, and uh, very protected sound protected. You could shoot sound, uh, record sound there day or night. It was like your wide open sound studio. There's no, (laughs) it was easy. Musicians record there now. This was 1946 and the Cisco Kid episodes with Duncan Rinaldo and Leo G. Carrillo are filmed there. uh, She told him about Pioneer Town and he didn't know about it. And he came out and was hosted and wined and dined. And uh, it, would people, his question was, would people here like to be in a movie? He can't pay you, but just get the pleasure of being in a movie called The Howling Seven. And of course, everybody said, yes, yes, we want to do that. And I got to be in this movie, and my part grew. And I told uh, Clive Turner, some of these lines are a little awkward for me. Could I rewrite them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he said, that's good. He's been a writer. He can do that. So I rewrote my lines and um, some of them. And my favorite line was, no, inspector, no man-made jail can stop him. Only death can do that. And, um, you know, uh, 
I, I've written about my experience during the Howling Seven, and it's one of the most uh, vanquished, disgustingly reviewed films of all times. There's one reviewer on the Internet who gets a version of it, a videotape version put out by German Tell Studio. Um, and that's a pretty good-looking print. I mean, uh, the, uh, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, he beats himself on the head with it. He hates it so much. He cries. He hits himself with the DVD. He breaks the DVD with his teeth. He break, He hits himself on the head. I've never seen a review that bad. I mean, that's that's bad. When they beat themselves over the head with your film. I met Andreas Kosak, who was a cinematographer, German trained in cinematography in Germany, and then a uh, summa cum laude from USC who had done maybe 200 industrial and educational films, worked for Playboy, worked for Disney, worked for all manner of people. Andreas Cossack was there, and we became good friends, and he was shooting it. The betrayal to Andreas was that they never used anything but the answer prints. He's a great photographer award-winning photographer, and you can't tell it from that movie because all you see are the dirty video answer prints used for e- editing. They never, you know, went to the master. And uh, he, he, some of his exposures were good. I contributed ideas. They took some of my ideas. Didn't work. Nobody knew. Jan Stout participated in the writing. Clive Turner participated in the writing. John Huff participated in the writing. Andreas Kosak participated in the writing. And several other people who probably don't want to be named participated in the writing. We had some of our local favorites there, some very hallowed people who were in it and who were laughed at by the rest of the world, but we loved them. My part grew. I became the narrator of those film clips from the preceding sequels, Howling 6, Howling 5, Howling. I was told, and people take that film to their relatives on the holidays and show them how bad a bad movie can be. It's, it's awful. So from the Howling 7, <clears throat> Andreas and I started writing together, working on ideas together, and we came up with the idea, what about making a, a very bad sci-fi film in the desert? It's so bad. It's so awful. It makes, it makes the worst, the lowest old Roger Corman film look like Citizen Kane. And we know that these films exist, but all these people love their work, and they're trying to make uh, a silk purse out of a sow's ear, but it's just a bigger sow's ear. It's awful. What about that? And we were warned you should, on your first film, you should always do a, uh, an axe movie. Have a woman running around in her underwear in, a, in an empty house with an axe or something. Do a, a horror movie. Don't try to do a comedy. So we tried to do a comedy. And it's a satire. It plays better here in Europe. I'm sitting here in Ireland. It plays better in Europe than here. Sizorg 7. And uh, Hollywood, the closer you get to Hollywood, the more it's hated because it has so many inside jokes, uh, 
terrorizing and paradizing the Hollywood industry, the, many of those people don't have a sense of humor about themselves. Everybody contributed their upsets, their strangeness, their, their strange experiences. And Andreas and I wrote and wrote and wrote, and uh, it's a cynical satire on Hollywood bullshit. And uh, I, I like it. I like it. And it was reviewed off-continent better than it was reviewed on. We got some good on-continent reviews. Uh, re reviewed very well in Britain by Darren Ray of Sci-Fi Online Video uh, Graveyard. It was reviewed very well in Germany. It's uh, had a kindly mention by Bill Gibran in USA Today. Um, we, we, and we've gotten some awful reviews, awful reviews. And, uh, people, uh, get irrational in those reviews. It is said in some of those reviews that Ray Wise's acting is not good. It's some of the finest work that great actor has ever done. And he's off Broadway. He's worked for Sam Shepard. And I say that avowedly. Ray Wise is doing a very subtle and sophisticated um, study of egoism and Hollywood egoic stupidity. He's giving you great, great pathos and bathos on, on Hollywood vanity. It's so good it hurts. It's a wonderful performance. We got the wonderful Sonia Smith, who's famous to half a billion people from telenovela exposure all over the world, but not known in Hollywood and not respected in Hollywood because she is of the life. She looks like she could be Nordic, and yet she was born in Venezuela, German father, uh, Latina mother, and speaks Spanish, curses well in Spanish, and uh, English is her second language, speaks French, speaks German. And she can't get a job in Hollywood because she doesn't look like a stereotypic Latina. That's the racism. That's the fucked up view of Hollywood. So Cyborg 7 became a story about outcasts and people who were not domestic Americans trying to make it in the Hollywood milieu. So it has a racial context, a gender context, a has-been, an age context, an aged star who's trying to do something again to reclaim his fame, it touches a lot of nerves, and it touches them well. It's a it's a fine film. I'm very pleased with it. Uh, we had all manner of uh, challenges in making the film. We were shot at one night. Somebody shot over our heads. Uh, my actors, my security was sound. My actors maintained very well it's a it's a nice thing when your actors can keep on acting when they've been shot at size Orc seven is an autobiographical personal reference from andreas cossack and myself to the fact that we met making the howling seven there are no prequels for the size Orc seven we only speak of them in general in our prologue and this is several years our prologue this are this is several years before you get the wonderful prologue with Ben Stiller in Tropic Thunder. This last year, I've written 
the the thing that killed my hands, I just finished it, my autobiography. It's called John Huff's Truth and Poverty, A Lifetime of Temporary Disillusionment. It's five, 450, 500 pages, and uh, it's in the hands of my formatter and I, my helper, Andreas Kosak, and it's going to appear on Amazon, Kindle, and Barnes & Noble in about two to three months. It's funny. It's sad. It's, uh, it's my story, and I talk about the Howling Seven. I talk about Seismark 7, <clears throat> talk a lot about chips, and uh, talk about sad times, talk about happy times, back-to-back, back-to-back. And uh, it's the best thing I've ever written. And I had to pay for it with uh, uh, repetitive muscle injury. <laughs> I- irony is a kick in the nuts, you know. Will you do me a favor and let me know when it comes out? I sure will. A copy of it might find its way to you. We're back and we're talking about bad medicine. So, Chris, it sounds like you're going to give this episode a thumbs up. But yeah, this is this is a very good, solid episode, uh, and, and one that kind of you know that works in a way that some of the other episodes didn't. And I think that a lot of that has to go to Richard Keel's performance and Richard Keel's kind of addition to this episode as the villain. Because I know you know, Mike, you and I have really ragged on the villains in this show. And kind of because the villains, you know, this is a monster of the week show. So the villains have to be as memorable as Kolchak because, you know, Darren McGavin has, you know, is so good as Kolchak. And so the villains have to be as memorable. And some of the villains just aren't very good at all. So it's nice to see that two episodes back to back have really well done memorable villains. Well, let's review. I mean, we're only nine episodes, eight episodes in here. So the Ripper, I thought was pretty good villain. The zombie. But it was pretty much just, um, the Ripper was pretty much just the Night Stalker again. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which you can also say about the vampire, which was the fourth right. episode. The zombie, we complained in that one that it's the grandmother seeking revenge. So she's not that memorable of a villain. They are, they have been, they will be, is just the lights and the fakey UFO. The werewolf, I think we both hate that villain because he's just not nearly a threat enough. Firefall was the weird doppelganger ghost that really can't do too much other than make people spontaneously combust. So it really wasn't until last week with Tom Skerritt and the Devil's Platform that we finally kind of got our footing under us. So I don't know how the Spanish Moss Murders is going to be on the next episode, but yeah, you're right. We've had two really strong villains back to back here. Well, the Think about all that. <laughs> Do hunt? Oh, well, <laughs> god damn it! I was hoping that Swamp Thing would actually be in the next episode. Wouldn't that be something? That'd be cool. <laughs> this is a tie into the DCU. Oh my! Oh my God! DCEU confirmed. I'm really disappointed that the next episode is going to be bad. <laughs> I mean, just judging what from what you're saying, Mike. I'm it's not. not it, it's not this. You know, it's okay. It's not this one. Nor is it Devil's Platform. What? So it. So is Bad Medicine your favorite episode of the show? Uh, it. I think it is of the series. I mean, obviously, the first movie is the best thing with. 
Carl Kolchak as a character. Um, yeah, I kind of like, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I do like the vampire episode, uh, but this one is, I think, the most solid episode that they made. And then for entirely different reasons, there's a, a later episode coming up called Chopper that I, I love because it is so bad, but uh, sort of deliriously bad. And has the distinction of being the first writing sample produced by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. So does the motorcycle have sex with its mom? And no, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, well, then I'm not interested. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I, oh no, uh, you're you're gonna you're gonna love that episode. Oh really? Oh yeah. If only for the effect that they have they've concocted for the motorcycle villain. The headless motorcycle villain, correct? Yes. Oh, my, yes. Yeah, we're going to be getting into some William Smith territory pretty soon, I think, too. So that's always something to look forward to. <laughs> I mean, we're almost now, you know, we're we're two episodes away from being at the halfway point of Kolchak, the Night Stalker, which is a huge bummer. But that still puts us like another two years in this podcast. <laughs> I'm not talking about the amount of time. I'm just talking about like... We haven't really, like, I would say less than half of the episodes we've watched so far have been good, which is kind of a bummer. Well, we'll see how it holds up. That's why these episodes, this episode in particular, is is, uh, such a gem. Because it's actually a good episode? Yes. So, Chris, what's happening over at the Culture Cast these days? Twice a week, Culture Cast. Talk about new movies. And this month, we're talking about the works of one Mr. Brian De Palma. Oh. That's a a thing. What? If that's the thing you're interested in, head on over to cultureshock.com where you can listen to me and my co-host and sometimes these two jamooks talk about movies. And I guess the only other question is, what have you been up to, Mr. Mike White, over at your home, away from home, the projection booth? Well, we've just been navel-gazing with some uh, artsy-fartsy films like uh, Man on a Swing, color pomegranates and we've got an episode on winter kills that is cooking up right now so talking about conspiracy theories with that one it's it's not quite the conspiracy theory film that blowout is speaking of brian de palma but it's up there the titles of those films could not have been more art house (laughs) the color of pomegranates (laughs) holy lord take that put that armenian art film in your pipe and smoke it (laughs) Well, and that's that's what Mike White brought to the Culture Cast last month with Mike White March, where we talked about Japanese new wave films, a genre slash movement that we probably never would have watched otherwise. You're welcome. Yes, thank you. You can find out more about the Culture Cast where, Chris? Cultureshock.com slash Culture Cast. Where can people find out about Odd Five Films and your podcast, Mike? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, uh... Uh, Odd Five Films, it's my channel on YouTube. It's just one word. And uh, my podcast is called We'll Take It From Here, and that's on iTunes and Podbean. Do people know how to spell odd these days? Probably not, which is why my numbers are so low. But in case you need it, O-U-G-H-T-F-I-V-E-F-I-L-M-S. One word, Odd Five Films. They ought to know how to spell it. I would have started with an A. I would have been wrong. Aha, see? I'm glad I uh, threw that out there then. And you find out more about the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. And you find out more about the Kolchak Tapes at Kolchak Tapes. 
com, and you can also go over to our Facebook group, join the lively conversations, and uh, you know have people say, "Oh, this episode was just on MeTV." Okay, great. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for letting us know where to watch the show that we've already watched. <laughs> I mean, look if you think if you don't like the podcast, tell us because honestly, you know. Well, it's not like we're going to quit or stop. <laughs> yeah, well, that. <laughs> Thanks to John Walker for doing the music for the show. And check us out every month here at ColdChackTapes.com. Nothing was found on that floor, not even ashes. Baker and the police have ruled the case closed, all in the public interest, of course. But there is the matter of those stolen gems. Those prized stones worth millions, billions. Over 300 years of treasure claimed by the Diablero, the crown jewels of Queen Elizabeth, the star sapphire of Nicholas I, the fearstone diamond of Bonaparte and Josephine, to name but a few. None of them have ever turned up in any market in this world. Only one thing remains. The detectives won't admit it, of course, but somewhere locked deep in the evidence files of the Chicago Police Department is a handful of black feathers.